Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you this morning. Well, a bittersweet morning. This morning is the, are we too loud on this? Is this all right? This morning will be our last in this series. It's 35 lessons. But remember, several of those lessons were because we had to kind of what summarized what we've already taught before COVID, and so we had that disruption. But I have to say that this has been one of the most challenging and rewarding sessions that we've taught. Rich. In rich, rich? Oh, Rich. <clears throat> I thought you were, I thought you were talking about somebody named Rich. Um, so by this time, we've seen that God's, this is so important. If you don't get anything else, get this. God's ultimate purpose in everything, in all things, is his glory but I'm putting an addendum to this, so you're going to have to write it down. God's ultimate purpose in everything, in all things, is his glory as displayed in his eschatological people. God's ultimate purpose is his glory as displayed in his eschatological, E-S-C-H-A-T-O-L-O-G-I-C-A-L, in his eschatological people. That means that God's purpose is not just his glory because he doesn't have to have a purpose about who he is. He is who he is. So there's no purpose in that. He's just, he is. But once we talk about God's purpose, we're talking about the outraying, the manifestation, the going out from himself of who he is in himself to be revealed in and through a people who will be gathered unto himself in the new heavens and the new earth upon the return of the Lord Jesus. So everything from Genesis 1-1 all the way through to the end of Revelation 22 and beyond forever, our Bible is about one subject, the glory of God in his eschatological people Now, you may say, well, what about Jesus? Well, yes, there's more to say. I just wanted to sum it up like that. Because the eschatological reference has to do with the coming of the Son of God into the world as the Son of Man to suffer and die for the sin of God's people in order to be raised from the dead to ascend into heaven, to be exalted at the right hand of God the Father with all authority and power. Remember that? Matthew 28, 18. 
in order for the exalted Son of Man, now as a man, having authority to send the Holy Spirit into the world to gather God's foreknown people, Ephesians 1, 4, foreknown before the foundation of the world, to collect all of us, to gather us finally and fully and forever into God's eternal kingdom, ruled and reigned over by his risen son. Amen? That's the purpose of God. And in those people, and only in those people, is the glory of God revealed. That's everything. That's what your Bible is about. Everything in the Bible is about that. Everything in the Bible is secondary to the display of God's glory. And everything in the Bible that God is doing is a progressive revel- a progressive move toward the fulfillment of his eternal purpose in his eschatological people, okay? Want to make sure we see that. Therefore, the love of God is given to us. Why? Because God loves us. Yes, but because God loves his own glory, therefore he loves us upon whom he will set his glory. Okay, ready? You got it? We getting it? That's why. And the, the coming out of the glory of God in the love of God's son or in the beloved son, the coming of God's glory in this beloved son who loves the father unto death and who loves us. I've lost my train of thought. Give me a moment. I, don't, I forgot where I was going, but that's okay. Everything is about God's glory. That's why God has done what he's done. And that's why, what God is doing in our lives. Amen? So, oh, I know. And so the process or the vehicle, I don't like those words. The way that God has, that, that Jesus has manifested the Father's love is through his own humility. Humility. Humility is the, if you would, attitude or virtue through which the love of God comes to us. The love of God, the display of his glory through his love, etc. Are we beginning to, to tie it together as one unit? Are we beginning to see that what we have in the Bible is a comprehensive revelation of our God who has displayed himself in us who are in his son. Do we get that? Is everybody understanding that? That's the content of the Bible. So we have seen that the glory of God was seen, has been clearly demonstrated in Jesus' love for the Father. When? When? When Jesus humbled himself. When did the Son of God humble himself? When did that begin? Genesis 1.1. You have to remember, you go back to the beginning. Genesis 1-1 is the first initiating activity of the Son of God in his humbling himself unto his Father's will to have a people. So the Son knows that when he declares the universe to be created, he is doing it for the purpose of the Father's love, the glory of the Father in him through his love, to be culminating at the cross in time and then to be ascended into heaven and be exalted 
so that he can bring a people unto God. So that God the Father's glory may be demonstrated in this people. When did the Son of God humble himself in time, in creation, at a point as a human? When? When he was incarnate. John 1.14 is the beginning of the Son of God humbling himself as a man. That's when he began to humble himself. What does John 1.14 say? And the word became and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, that glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Anton, when did that begin? At the conception when the Holy Spirit came upon Mary. That's when the Son of God, in a time frame, humbled himself, culminating where? At the cross. So every step, every breath, every word, every heartbeat of the Son of God as the Son of Man was a humbling, a humbling, a humbling, a humbling. Progressively so revealed. Progressively revealed as to its enormity and its cost to him personally at the cross. So he doesn't humble himself more at the cross as he did before the cross or when he was, a, you know, in, in, he humbles himself progressively being revealed as to its cost at the cross. Do we see that? Now, this is why we read in James 4.10. Why the Holy Spirit gives us this instruction. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. Stephen, humble yourself. Charles, humble yourself. Donnie, what? Humble yourselves. This is a command of the Holy Spirit to everyone in Christ. Humble yourselves. Now, by the way, I will make one preparatory comment. We were born again. Because the Holy Spirit came upon us. Remember Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. I will, I will, I will. Remember all that. What the Lord would do in us, giving us the Spirit. And he will wash us and cleanse us and cause us to walk in his ways. Do you remember that? Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. That touch of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. To change our hearts from a heart of what? Stone to a heart of flesh. At that moment, when that happened, the Holy Spirit... Gave to us the very humility of the Lord Jesus so that we would say, he didn't give us a choice. River, will you accept me or not? Will you say yes to Jesus or not? He didn't give you a choice. He touched your heart, liberating your heart, giving you the humility of Jesus so you would say what? Yes. And once we humbled ourselves and said, Lord, save me, right, Celeste? Forgive me. Then we began to be experiencing the reality and the power and the presence of God in us. It's called being born again. It's what Jesus refers to in John 3 when he's talking to Nicodemus. So we're told to humble ourselves. So we now are able 
to humble ourselves with the same humility that Jesus with which Jesus humbled himself. Can you remember that? We are able today to humble ourselves with the same humility with which Jesus humbled himself. Amen? And this is the most devastating work against our flesh. Humility is the most devastating work and the crux of where it is so hard, hard. It's just hard. But Jesus decided to do it moment by moment, and we are commanded to decide to do it moment by moment. What would be the result? When you read the rest of James 4.10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, the result of this. That he, God, will what? Exalt you. What does that mean? <clears throat> he will cause us, give us the ability and the privilege to share in the exaltation of his glorified son. That's why I said in the beginning, God's glory as manifested finally where? In the, his eschatological people. We cannot say and we must not say God's ultimate purpose is his glory. He has determined that his glory has a place to be re, uh, in which to be revealed. So we have to add that in order to get the total context and understanding of what God is doing and why he's doing it. So the result will be this. Second Thessalonians 1.12. That the name of our Lord Jesus Christ will be glorified. Look at this. In you and you what will be glorified because you see the reference there, in him. Look at that. Look at that. Gwen, you're going to be glorified in Jesus and he and you. It's already begun. We're already seeing what? Glimpses. But on that day, when we receive a new body, after the similitude of his body, and we talked about that in Philippians 2.20 or 3.20. Someone may have to look that up for me in 21. That means that everything today in my life, and I have to battle for this. Jason, I have to battle for this. Everything in my life has to be decided upon that day when I will receive a body after the body of Jesus himself. For which Jesus died so that the Father's glory may be manifested in me and you and us together in our glorified bodies after the similitude of the body of our risen Savior. Is that astounding or not? The fruit of a humbling ourselves will be the activity of God's love in us and our love for God and our love for one another. It will be the fruit of the spirit, which is love. That's the fruit, the living reality that we are the people of God's glory. The fruit of our humbling ourselves will be our love for God. As I said, first John four twelve. if we love one another, God lives in us and his love. Galatians five twenty two to 23 is made complete or perfect or matured in us. It's brought to fruition in us.
This morning I wanted to conclude the study of God's love with some comments about what Jesus' humility would, should look like and will look like in us when we humble ourselves. So I want to conclude with looking at Jesus again in order to understand when we look at him, the quintessential man of God, and we see him, we see his decisions, we see the result against him of his decisions so that we can have a clearer understanding and picture, reality, of what it means for me and you to humble ourselves before God. Amen? Remember in Philippians 2, 6 to 8, we read that Jesus emptied himself of any grasping for or holding on to or any claim that this is my right. Jesus came and the Son of God took on a human body and soul, and he lived every moment never claiming anything about or for himself personally that had not something directly to do with the glory of the Father. He didn't make any personal claims of any personal benefit as a human being. He laid aside all of his personal rights as a human being in order to serve the Father. Any of those rights that in any way got in the way of his Father's glory. Do we see that? Essential for us to see it. Because if we don't see that, we don't understand what humbling is all about. Therefore, Jesus' humility in us will look like when we look at ourselves, we should be seeing the very refusal for me and you to grasp for or to stand for or to want or to claim my personal right in contradiction to and in opposition to God's right. You see, we have rights in Christ, but they are all summed up, Gordon, in one right. God's right to be glorified in me. Every right I have as a man in Christ, as a woman in Christ, Darlene, Rooster, as a man in Christ, Mary, a woman in Christ, every right we have is gathered up into one right, the right of our heavenly Father to be what? Glorified in me. That's your right. That's my right. Anybody who teaches or preaches contrary to that has not understood why God has saved you. And when you think of that, think of the many times we claim our rights. Think about it. Well, what about this and what about that? You mean I can't? Well, I have the right. Do you hear it in your mind all the time? You see, I have no personal right to make any personal decision about my life. I have no right, Linda, to do that. Patsy, you have no right. The American way is that we have rights. But that's not God's way. It's not God's way. David, think for yourself. No, think God's thoughts after him. Stop thinking for yourself or you'll go under. 
Cody, do you get that? We're not called to think for ourselves. We're not called to use our minds. We're called to submit ourselves, our minds and everything to God that we may hear him and do according to him, Ronnie. I've heard so many believers say, well, God has given us a mind, therefore we're supposed to use it. Not use it the way you think, use it for the purpose of God. And how will I do that? And listening to him. Do you see where your rights are? Chris, this is where the glory of God is manifested. Not that you as a dentist have such a wonderful mind and you can think of all kinds of things and you have wonderful, oh, how great your mind. No! It's that God works in the man's mind and is manifested in what this man thinks and does, where he goes and where he doesn't go, etc. Debbie, do you see that? This is the glory of God, that they may see us in any and every capacity and say, that's what God is about. Jesus never made a personal decision. If any man could use his mind, here is a man with a perfect mind, and yet he didn't use it that way, Kevin. He used it perfectly to submit to the mind or the will of Heavenly Father. Correct, Phyllis? I'm so tired of this man-centered teaching and preaching that we hear in the churches today. I am sick and tired of it because it does not glorify God. So by refusing to hold on to or defend or grasp for his own personal rights, Jesus was free to respond to the needs of others. How? With God's love. Remember Galatians 5.1, for it is freedom, for freedom that Christ has set you free. That freedom is not my freedom to make my choice where to live, what to do, where to go, how to do it. That is not the freedom. That is a bondage. We are now free of any and all obstructions in us if we will submit to God to hear him and free to do according to his will. That's the freedom. I've heard this talked about in all kind of ways. I've sat with people, you know, who were doing some <laughs> thing, you know, wonder what, oh, I'm free to do that. You are not free, Mark, to do anything. You're only free to do one thing, the Father's will. Jesus went to the cross so you and I can make personal decisions that may or may not have anything to do with God. Are you kidding? Are you kidding? Free from the obstruction of being self-focused. Can you say amen? Are we seeing that I'm seeing this in me, but it's a terrible battle in me. Progressively and too slow in my mind for me. Slow being, slowly being freed from being preoccupied with me. My self-focus, Angel. Self-focus. Rather than what? God-focused. Humility is what? God-focused. Arrogance, pride is what? Self-focused. Paul says, don't let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke to slavery. Slavery to what? To yourselves. We think slavery to adultery, slavery to bad language. Well, yes, but all of that underneath is being promoted by me. Me. 
not thee. Because Jesus humbled himself. He was free of being, of any self-focus. He was free from that. He didn't grasp for anything of self-significance or self-aggrandizement, you know, making himself something. He emptied himself of that. To be free to focus on the glory of God in loving God and loving God's people. So let's look at some of the rights that Jesus set aside. Let's look at some of the rights that Jesus refused to grasp. But emptied himself of these. Letting them go out of his decisional grasping. In order that the father's glory may be manifested. Just have a list of them. Jesus had the right to be understood. Now, when we go through this, please don't make the mistake of making this about Jesus. It is about Jesus, but it's about Jesus because it is also about us. Jesus became a man in, for our sakes that God would have us as his people through the sacrificial death, resurrection, exaltation of Jesus, correct? So we are to look at these, look at them in Jesus' life, but also then allow the Holy Spirit to look at them in where? My life. Do you have the right to be understood? Yes. Jesus set it aside rather than to grasp it. So he was free of trying to be understood. I just want you to make sure you get it. I, I want to make sure you understand what I'm doing here. Anybody hear yourself in that? Am I the only one to you know, right? I want to make sure. Jesus says, I'm not here for that. I'm here for you to understand the Father's will. My human will is not going to get in the way. I'm not going to let it. Jesus had the right to be honored. To be honored. Do you have the right to be honored? Yes, as children of God, yes. But do you have the right to grasp it and hold on to it and make that something more important than experiencing dishonor for the sake of the glory of God in the way you love one another and those who dishonor you? Amen. No man was more dishonored than Jesus. No man. But he didn't grasp being honored. Don't you know who I am, Stephen? I'm an elder. I'm a pastor in this church. Touch not the anointed. Glory to me. Glory to God in me. No. Jesus never did that. Somebody comes up to him and says, good teacher. What well, he said, don't call me good. Why? Not what Jesus wasn't good. <clears throat> this man was not seeing Jesus for who he really was. Jesus said, don't do that. Only what? God is good. Don't make that mistake. Don't honor me falsely. Jesus had the right to be believed. You're telling me that what I'm telling you, you don't believe what I'm telling you? You're calling me a liar? Come on, come on, class, come on. You don't believe me? Can you just hear my grasping for self-aggrandizement? You don't believe me? Carolyn, you don't believe me? 
They didn't believe Jesus every day of his life. He didn't grasp that. He ministered to their unbelief so that they would believe God. So they will believe God. Believe him in context of being the son of God. He had the right to be received. What do you mean you don't receive me? What, 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 what do you mean? No man was rejected like this. And yet he didn't cling to and fight for and grasp being received. Do we see ourselves in this? Are you seeing yourself in this? Come on, are we? Anybody at all? Jesus had the right to be respected. <laughs> but he didn't fight for that right. This man was so disrespected. We get upset when we're not respected. And do you feel that in you? When you're looked over, when you're not given the, you know, the, uh, whatever, the praise, you're a disrespect. Jesus said, I'm not going down that road. I'm here for the Father's respect. You don't ever have to respect me. What other man am I thinking of when we read this? There's another man in the Bible that really to do a study of Paul's life and writings, you need to do it in reference to these rights being not held on to. It is ups, absolutely amazing what God did in this man. Read it. It's all over the place. How he surrendered his personal rights. And the only time he defended himself was for the purpose of defending the gospel that he preached. Otherwise, he says, let me talk as an insane man. Let me, you know, I, I don't want to do this. It's, I don't want to get near talking about me. Jesus had the right to be obeyed. Who we don't like it when people don't do what we tell them to do. That's half the problem with half, or maybe half the problem with mo most parents. They get upset when their children don't obey. Why do you get upset? Why do you get angry? And in your anger, should God the Father be angry with you when you don't obey him? Oh, well, I, that's right. I don't want that. But my son had to overrule. No. It's not about you. It's about God. We need to look at our children the way we deal with disobedience and even within the church very differently from the perspective of the glory of God. Jesus had the right to be appreciated. <laughs> All I've done for you all these years and you still don't. So you've done it for their appreciation, haven't you? You poor darling. Pharaoh, we're here for the appreciation of God and not of men. Had the right to be loved. He was hated. You see, this is what humble yourselves should look like in us. Jesus was freed of any and all self-focus. And he could freely, therefore, love God by loving God's people. How much? 
How far do we take this? How far do we take this surrendering our own rights and not do how long, how far? The end of verse 8 in Philippians 2, even unto death. This is hard, Leah. This is difficult. This is difficult. This is the hardest thing you'll ever fight in your life. The most difficult battle in our lives is the battle against ourselves. Can you say amen? amen. There's no other battle this difficult. The battle against this pile of flesh. This thing in me that wants to rebel and raise its head above the glory of God. This is what Jesus' humility will look like when we humble ourselves. What will it look like? What is the end result? Why do it? Why do it? You see the answer in Philippians 2 again, verses 9 to 11. Everybody knows what that says? Because Jesus humbled himself, because we humble ourselves even to death, even to, unto death, even death upon the cross. How far do you go along with this? How far? I can't go any further. Well, no, you won't go any further. You can, but you won't. Well, how long do I put up with this? Until your flesh is completely crucified. Cody, you got it? How far? David, how far? Until your flesh is completely crucified, and that ain't happening. We're going to be rescued by the return of Jesus or die first. And what is the result? Philippians 2, 9, 11. Wherefore also God has highly exalted him and has given him a name above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall what? Bow in things in the heavens, on earth, and under the earth. And every Tongue shall confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? For what purpose? To the glory of God the Father. That's what your life is all about. Luke twenty two twenty seven, the most one of the most astounding verses in the Bible. Jesus is with his men in the upper room and he says, I am among you as one who serves. You see, how many of us want to be servants of God? I, I think all of us. You know what the problem is? We don't like being treated like a servant. Jesus was a servant who was treated like a servant. We're okay if we're not treated like a servant. Let someone start treating me like a servant and my flesh wants to go to war. Correct? Correct? You see, the Holy Spirit has given us the humility of Jesus. And how is that humility to be worked out in us essentially? How is the glory of God to be manifested in us essentially? Read 15, John fifteen twelve. This is my commandment, that you love one another 
just as or in the very same way that I have loved you. Loving the brethren is loving the God of the brethren. Loving God is loving his people. We cannot, under any circumstance, say, I love God, but I will not tolerate this fool, this person, this thing. I will not. I'm not. You know, and have an attitude about anyone in the body of Christ. Any attitude that we have in toward anyone in the body of Christ, no matter what the reason is, our attitude is about Jesus himself. Matthew 25, 40. As often as you have done it to the least of one of these, my brethren, you have done it to me. And then in verse 45, as often as you have not done it to the least of one of these, my brethren, you have not done it unto me. So the way we treat one another, we think about one another, we criticize one another, we complain about one another. And I, this is a battle in me. I have to watch it. All of this, we, you know, all of this stuff, we are doing it directly to the Son of God himself. Why? Because God loves us with the same love with which he loves the son. We are in his son. And anything directed toward any of those who are in his son is directed to Jesus, therefore to God the Father himself. Jesus says, John 15, 12, this is my commandment, what? That you love one another, how? As I have loved you. To what extent? All the way to the cross. Until your flesh is crucified. Let me finish with this quote from 1 John 4, 7 to 12. Beloved. And hopefully these quotes from the Bible will begin to mean a little bit more to us than they did before. Let us love one another. Why? Why? Because God is love. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not love, know God. Why? Because God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us. How? How do we know it? That God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might have life or live through him. In this is love. Not that we love God. You see, I didn't call upon Jesus. I didn't lovingly reach out and ask Jesus to come into my heart. Therefore, he came running along. But that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This is the visible glory of God upon the earth to be fully manifested in the eschaton, in the, in the return of Jesus, in the eschatological kingdom. And the way this happens in us is that we humble ourselves. As you pray for yourself and others, pray that God will increase our, sorry, will increase the humility of Jesus in us. Increase the power, the consistency. I need a greater, greater, greater work 
of the humility of Jesus in my heart. And the greater the work of the humility of Jesus himself will be the greater outflow of the love of God in my obedience to the Father, to love him and to love one another. Amen. Amen. Next week, David and I will begin a new series on 1 Peter. Thank you so much.